We are Centrepoint Church. This is a recent recording from our Sunday morning gathering. We hope you can join us at the Odeon Cinema in Guildford, Sundays at 10am. Enjoy the message. Well, good morning. It's my absolute privilege and pleasure to speak here this morning. If you don't know who I am, uh, my name's Sam and uh, I work in government for the Department for Work and Pensions. Very interesting time at the moment. Uh, doing social research for them. Um, and alongside that, as Barney mentioned, I volunteer as the students and 20s worker within this church. Um, other than that, the only things you need to know about me is I recently got married to my beautiful wife, Emma. Um, so that was in September. Um, and I love sport, particularly football. Played football yesterday, 1-3-1, happy days. Um, if you've got a Bible on you, either physical or electronic, can I encourage you to turn or flick to Joshua chapter 10? If you don't have a physical Bible with you, please stick your hand up in the air and someone will come and bring one to you. Uh, it could be that your hand's in the air because you actually don't own a physical Bible. If that's the case, then we don't want that Bible back. You can keep it as a free gift from us to you. We love the Bible in this church and we want everyone to get stuck into it. Um, I'm going to quickly pray before we begin. Um, so, Heavenly Father, thank you, Lord, for your word. Thank you for today. And thank you, Father, for who you are. We praise you for who you are. Pray, Lord, as we come to read your word, you would speak to us and change our hearts. Amen. Amen. So here we go. Then question to begin with is... Oh, I need to turn this on, don't I? There we go. That'd be helpful. Question to begin with is this. Do you know your God? Do we know our God? Do you know your God? See, I ask this question because we've been going through the book of Joshua, looking at the promises of God and stepping into all that God has in store for us as the people of God. But sometimes it's helpful to think to ourselves, well, who is this God? Now, we're not going to go through every characteristic or attribute of our God in this passage. We don't have enough time in the passage. It doesn't speak on all the attributes of God. But I think, as you'll see when we read this passage, you might be thinking, oh, what are we going to draw out from this? This is a bit random. Certainly, that's what I thought when I first read it. But actually, as I looked into it a bit more, I really believe that God wants to draw out three key things for us today about who he is and his character. Before we get into reading it, I think it's helpful to set a little bit of context to understand where we are in this book. So it's helpful to look where we've come from earlier on in the book and also where the book's going. So right at the beginning of the book of Joshua in chapter 1, we see the nation of Israel who have been released from slavery from the nation of Egypt were wandering in the wilderness for 40 years. They then come at the beginning of Joshua ready, coming at the border to the promised land which God promised the nation of Israel. And Joshua leads them into that promised land. We, we heard earlier on, didn't we, in the series of the miracle of when they crossed the River Jordan into the promised land. We then saw the beginning of the conquest of the land, which God had promised them. So we saw uh, the Battle of Jericho um, and also the conquest of the city of Ai. We then, as we uh, saw last week, uh, we saw that the Gibeonites, um, in potentially slightly sneaky ways, uh, were brought in to the people of God because they feared the Lord and they wanted to come into his people. And actually... That is a consistent thread throughout the book of Joshua. It's a consistent thread throughout the entire scriptures, the thread of redemption. And we've seen that through the book of Joshua. We've seen that with Rahab and her family. 
where they were brought into the people of God. They were outsiders brought in because they feared the Lord. And we saw that last week with the Gibeonites. They feared the Lord and they were brought in to the people of God. It's very easy to look at the book of Joshua and think, oh, it's just war and conquest. Friends, let me be loud and clear. The book of Joshua is also one of redemption. Our God is in the work of saving people and of redeeming people. So then we come into chapter 10, and actually we're still early on in the conquest of the land. Israel hasn't conquered much of the land. We're still very early on in the conquest. And then after this chapter, the writer of Joshua essentially summarizes uh, the rest of the conquest, looking at the southern cities which they go and conquer, then moving up to the northern part of the promised land, conquering all those kings. And then there's a small section which says, oh, great, now we've conquered all this land. There's still some little bits left which we've got to conquer. And then the remaining chapters of the book of Joshua, pretty much all of them, kind of are relatively repetitive in that they assign areas of the land to the different tribes of Israel. So that's essentially where the book kind of finishes. It says, hey, we've got most of the land, not all. How are we going to divide that land up between the tribes of Israel? But today we are in chapter 10. And I'm just going to explain a little bit about where we're going to go. We're going to read the passage together. I'd also encourage you to keep your Bibles open or up on your phone, because we're going to constantly be going back into the passage. Some of it will be up on the screen as well, um, if that's helpful for you. Um, And then I'm going to try and draw out three key things. That God is faithful to his people and his promises. That he's God of all things. And also that he is powerful, yet personal. So that's where we're going. Let's, um, Let's read it together, shall we? Joshua chapter 10 starting at verse 1, and we're going up to verse 15. Here we go then. Now Adonai Zedek, king of Jerusalem, heard that Joshua had taken Ai and totally destroyed it, doing to Ai and its king as he had done to Jericho and its king, and that the people of Gibeon had made a treaty of peace with Israel and had become their allies. He and his people were very much alarmed at this because Gibeon was an important city, like one of the royal cities. It was larger than Ai, and all its men were good fighters. So Adonizedek, king of Jerusalem, appealed to Hoham, king of Hebron, Piram, king of Jarmuth, Japhia, king of Lachish, and Debir, king of Eglon. Come up and help me attack Gibeon, he said, because it has made peace with Joshua and the Israelites. Then the five king of the, kings of the Amorites, the kings of Jerusalem, Hebron, Jarmuth, Lachish, and Eglon, joined forces. They moved up with all their troops and took up their positions against Gibeon and attacked it. The Gibeonites then sent word to Joshua in the camp of Gilgal. Do not abandon your servants. Come up to us quickly and save us. Help us because all the Amorite kings from the hill country have joined forces against us. So Joshua marched up from Gilgal with his entire army, including all the best fighting men. The Lord said to Joshua, do not be afraid of them. I have given them into your hand. Not one of them will be able to withstand you. After an all-night march from Gilgal, Joshua took them by surprise. The Lord threw them into confusion before Israel. So Joshua and the Israelites defeated them completely at Gibeon. Israel pursued them along the road going up to Beth Horon and cut them down all the way to Azekah and Makkedah. As they fled before Israel on the road down from Beth Horon to Azekah, the Lord hurled large hailstones down on them and more of them died from the hail than were killed by the swords of the Israelites. On the day the Lord gave the Amorites over to Israel, Joshua said to the Lord in the presence of Israel, Sun, stand still over Gibeon, and you, moon, over the valley of Ijalon. So the sun stood still, and the moon stopped, 
till the nation avenged itself on its enemies, as it is written in the book of Jashar. The sun stopped in the middle of the sky and delayed going down about a full day. There has never been a day like it before or since, a day when the Lord listened to a human being. Surely the Lord was fighting for Israel. Then Joshua returned with all Israel to the camp at Gilgal. What a passage. Love it. Brilliant passage. I love this book, actually. I think it's been so helpful going through. It's really rich in so many biblical truths. Um, before we get into my first point proper, I just thought it would probably be helpful to focus in on the first few verses just to understand what's going on with these kings then. So Gibeon, as we know, has just made a peace treaty with Israel. They've come into the people of God. And Adoni Zedek, who is the king of Jerusalem, you see there on the right-hand side, he thinks, he doesn't like this, does he? What does it say in verse 1? Adoni Zedek, king of Jerusalem, heard that Joshua had taken Ai and totally destroyed it. Uh, he also hears that Gibeon has made treaty uh, with Israel. And then to top it all off, Gibeon, which we can see here, you see where all the red lines are pointing to, which represents the kings attacking Gibeon. Um, Gibeon was also quite an important strategic city in the area in terms of trade routes as well. It's very important. And also, what does it say as well? At the end of verse uh, 2, they were really good fighters there. So at the beginning of verse 3, notice what the king of Jerusalem does. Come come with me back into the passage. Adonizedek, king of Jerusalem, appealed to these four other kings. So he appeals to Hoham of Hebron. He appeals to Piram of Jarmuth, Japhia of Lachish, and Debir of Eglon. You see where those cities are marked. And he he calls them essentially to say, hey, look, our previous friend Gibeon, he's just joined the people of God. Let's go attack them. So essentially, a southern coalition of these kings is formed. Now, I was going to put up some nice pictures of fancy kings up there next to each of those names. But um, when I was doing that, I realized, uh, as Phil mentioned last week, although it says king in many translations, actually what that means is kind of a chief of a tribe. So it's not really necessarily like a king as we would think of today. They're more chiefs of these tribes. But Gibeon, I would say, is a parallel of what happens to us when we come to faith. Isn't it often true that when we come to faith or have a significant recommitment, suddenly all those people around us who maybe we were close to before, family or friends, suddenly are like, you what? You believe what? See, all these kings were allies and friends with Gibeon beforehand. They come into the people of God, then suddenly they're against them. That's what we see still today. And that is what we see in the world around us. I recently met and uh, had time with a young man from Kurdistan who grew up in a Muslim uh, background. He was a Muslim until he came over to the UK. In miraculous circumstances, um, and we don't have to, I don't have time to go into it today. He was saved and became a Christian overnight after encountering Jesus in a dream. He then the next day um, phoned up his parents and his family back in Kurdistan. Uh, this was about two years ago, and he's never heard from them since. They disowned him as their son and as his friend. You know, and Jesus talks about this as well, doesn't he? He says, when the seed, so the word of God, is planted in people's hearts, it can land in good soil, but then the troubles of the world and then people around can come and take over and they can come and steal away the good work which the Lord has done. And so before we come to the first point of God being faithful, I think there's a challenge for us here today as a church is 
Yes, God is faithful to his people and his promises. That is the point I'm coming to in a second. But actually notice here, what did Gibeon, the Gibeonites do? They say to the Israelites, come up to us quickly and save us, help us. Friends, do you know people, either in the context of this church or other people you know, who you know are young in the faith or have just come to faith? And they may be in that situation where they're saying, hey, I'm actually really struggling. Being a Christian is really hard. Are we going to go in and help them and disciple them? We're called to be disciples, aren't we, in the Great Commission, to make disciples of all nations, not converts. And so will we go, as the Gibeonites called out, will we go to those who've just come into the people of God and help them? Two other quick things on this. The Gibeonites were, as we saw on the map, they were still in enemy land. So they were still in a land where everyone was kind of against them. And that's, again, that's often a parallel of what we're like. When we come to faith, we're not meant to come out of that area. We're not meant to come out of the place we were in into kind of a holy huddle. No, we're meant to be in the midst of the darkness and the depths of this world to be a shining light. Will we go into those dark places? And notice what the Israelites do. Verse 7, what does it say? So Joshua marched up from Gilgal with his entire army, including all the best fighting men. He sees a problem and says, hey, we're going to help them. They've only just come into the fold of God, new people. But they say, no, we're going to help them. An example of this for us, which we know uh, we've heard about recently. Paul and Joe, they're going off to Lebanon. They're going to a place where they're saying, hey, there's new churches developing in this place. We need people to go. And you know know what we're doing? Hey, we're doing the end of verse 7. Notice they send the whole army, but they include their best fighting men. Hey, we're sending our best in Paul and Joe. They're great warriors of the faith and we're sending them. And although that might be hard for us in some senses of the church that we're losing two great people. Hey, they're doing this, aren't they? People crying out for help. Hey, we're going to go and help them. So I think that's a challenge to us as a body of believers, regardless of how Uh, long you've been a Christian will we go and help new believers there we go sending the best men but here we go then the Lord is faithful though to his people and his promises so Israel is saying hey we're going to go but God this verse I think is brilliant I think there's two things which can both be drawn from this that God is firstly he's faithful to his people what does he say do not be afraid of them I've given them into your hand not one of them will be able to withstand you these Gibeonites have come into the people of God and God isn't like, oh, nah, see, you've only been with me for a month, so I'll sack you off. No, he says, no, I'm your God, so I'm going to help you. I'm faithful to you. He is, God is faithful to his people. Sometimes we hear that um, and we might think, oh, that's a bit fluffy. God's going fight, to fight for me in the current situation I'm in. And I think sometimes I certainly have as well, but I think often this can be more of a challenge for men to hear Because, well, I certainly am extremely arrogant and think, yeah, I'm just going to do it myself. I don't need God. But actually, the scriptures are littered with examples where it says, hey, God is your rock and he's your fortress and he will fight for you. Because he's a God who cares for you individually. That is biblical. It is in the scriptures. It might sound fluffy, but boy, is it true. Notice, though, that the other part of this verse is, yes, God's faithful to his people, but he's faithful to his promises. So he's promised the nation of Israel this land. He's promised it to them. So God's going to deliver on his promises. You know, every promise God makes in the scriptures, he fulfills. He's got a 100% success rate. 
So in this verse as well, he's saying, hey, do not be afraid of them. I've given them into your hands because I promise you the land. You know, God is faithful to accomplish the promises which he's given us. Notice, though, that God's promise does therefore not mean that we don't act. Notice, what does it say? What does it say? Verse 9, what happens? After an all-night march from Gilgal, Joshua took them by surprise. In a sense, Joshua knows the promises of God. He's been told the promises of God, but he doesn't then think, oh, we'll just sit back and like God will just work it out. No, the call is that we can step in with confidence, knowing the promises of God, but we still have to take that first step. Chris talked about this earlier on in the passage, where uh, earlier on in the book, sorry, where the people of Israel are standing before the River Jordan, which was in flood season, water's gushing down. God says, hey, you're going to go over, but first, you're going to go into the land, I promise you that, but first, the Levites, um, who are carrying the Ark of the Covenant, they first need to step in to the river. So knees are knocking whilst the river's coming down. They've got to take that first step. Does that make sense? I hope, that, I hope that's clear, because what God's saying to us, I believe, in this passage and, and through other areas of Scripture is, if God's promised us something, he will accomplish it. But that doesn't mean we just sit back and do nothing. And actually, in this instance, it created an extremely like, ingenious idea from Joshua. He thinks, ah, why don't we like, march all the way through the night and create an ambush on them? Maybe God told him that specifically, but in, the, in the, how this passage is written, it seems that God, Joshua hears the promise of God and says, hey, I'm going to step into that. What does that therefore then mean practically for us Today, we've heard a lot about the promises of God, and actually the whole Bible is littered with various promises which God gives us, his people. Friends, if you're sat here today and you've put your trust in Jesus, you know that means you are free from the penalty and punishment of your sin. You're free from death. You don't have to face it. What does that mean? Well, that means you can have confidence and boldness in your faith. That means in real hard times of grief and despair, we can know, hey, we've got a hope. We've got confidence in the Lord. That can give us hope. I know some of us within this room have been on the Freedom in Christ course, which this church is running. The church is going to be running it again soon. And a lot of what the course content talks on is saying, hey, now you've become a Christian, look at all these promises which God has, God has got in store for you. That you're not defined by what you look like or what you do. That your identity is in Christ, not in what you do or, or in who you are. Your identity is firmly in Christ how do we then take the steps into that well my encouragement would be reflect on that spend time in prayer letting God sink that into your hearts that you may know in the very core of your being that you are a son or a daughter of God that is who you are or maybe you've had a specific promise or calling given to you in your life maybe you know absolutely God has called you to a certain ministry area or geographical area or job. If God has given you that and has promised you that and you are certain it is from the Lord, my encouragement is, hey, still step into that. Take that step of faith and God will establish your steps. You've got to take that first step because the Lord's going to deliver, isn't it? Don't be afraid. I'm going to do it. I promised it to you. I will do it. But sometimes we need to take that first step. So that's the first thing. God's faithful to his people and he's faithful to his promises. Do you know your God? Our God is faithful and he will do what he says. The next section we come to, um, I want to highlight this next point, which is this. 
Do we know our God? Well, our God is God over all things and he's the only God. He's God over all things and he's the only God. See, the next section of passage which we're going to come to, which will come up on the screen, is far more, far more than God winning a battle. He actually does three really specific things within this battle to display that he alone is God and he's above all other gods, small g. He's above all of them and he is the only God. And he does this in three ways. So the first thing he does is, look what it says, verse 10. The Lord threw them into confusion before Israel. So Joshua and the Israelites defeated them completely. They pursued them along the road all the way down to Azekah and Makkedah. The kings, the Canaanite kings who are, who are up, who came up against Gibeon, they worshipped various gods. And one of the gods they worshipped was a violent war god called Anath. And what, god want, what God's showing them here is, hey, that god Anath, yeah, he's nothing. He actually doesn't even exist because I'm going to blow your god Anath out the water. I'm going to create a military miracle. The nation of Israel walk up this mountain path all the way through the night, which is pretty long distance, estimates of about 15 to 20 miles. They walk all the way through the night up this mountain road. And then they completely destroy them and also come upon them when they don't realise it. One, I don't know how you keep that many people quiet for that long. I'd be getting pretty nervous or excited about the possibility of a battle. And then two, if I stay up all night, let alone walk 20 miles during the night, I'm going to struggle to have the energy to not only fight people, but then chase them all the way down to Azekah and Makeda, which is another similar distance. Notice what God's doing here. He's not just, he, it's not that they come upon them and beat them. No, it's a, complete, it's a complete and resounding victory for the Lord. He's saying, hey, I'm so much greater than your God, Anath. The second thing he does is in verse 11, what does it say? The Lord hurled down large hailstones on them. One of the other gods they worshipped at the time was called Baal. We come across Baal a lot in the Old Testament where the Israelites actually end up worshipping Baal at times as well. Baal is the god of storms. And so what does God do? He says, hey, I'm going to um, just like bring down an enormous hailstorm but not just in the rough area. I'm going to bring it down just on them and not on the Israelites. And notice what it says here, that more of them died from the hail than were killed from the swords of the Israelites. See, God's showing them specifically, hey, I'm the God of the storm. I'm the only God there is, and I'm God over all these areas. Now, as we read that, you may be thinking to yourself, and maybe this is your first time uh, in our series around Joshua, and you may be thinking, mm, this doesn't sit well with me. Why is this conquest going on? Why is there all this death and destruction? Uh, and my encouragement is that there are absolutely right and good answers to those questions. And if you have those questions, that's great. Please come and speak to me afterwards. I'd love to answer them. Um, but we have addressed this, these particular questions on two specific talks earlier on in the series. Um, so, and we don't necessarily have too much time to go into that today. But I just wanted to say that just in case you were thinking, this is a bit strange. Um, there are answers for that. The last thing of three which God does, which we're going to come back to you because it's pretty outrageous. Um, what does God do? Well, he basically stops the sun, doesn't he? He stops the sun in the sky. So the sun stood still and the moon stopped till the nation avenged itself on its enemies. Another god which the Canaanites worshipped was a god called Shamash. That was the sun god which they worshipped. And God wanted to say, hey, you worship Shamath. Shamath has not got a patch on me. 
I am the God of all things and I'm the only God. And it's easy, isn't it? When we read that, we think, ah, oh, those stupid Canaanites worshipping the sun and storms. And... But I think that's exactly what we do. We have so many gods which we worship. As so many gods we put above our God as Christians. The Canaanite, sorry, the Israelites did it continuously. Just read the Old Testament. They say, yeah, we love you, Lord, but they loved all the other gods. We do that so often, don't we? It's so easy for us to do. That's why one of the commandments in the Old Testament is, you shall have no other gods but me. I am the only God. And so my question and my challenge to all of us, myself included, is what are the, those gods we have in our life which we're putting above the Lord? I don't know what it is. You know exactly what it is. When I've been saying that, I pray that the Lord is convicting you by his spirit. You know those gods in your heart. I know them in my heart. Maybe it's physical appearance. Maybe that's a God for you. Maybe that's something you worship and put above the Lord and think, ah, oh, God's, God's not as important as, as that. Maybe it's financial clout. Maybe it's success at work. Maybe it's work in and of itself. Maybe it's a relationship you have. You see, the point of this particular battle, God's, God is, what he's trying to do is say, those gods are not gods. You may think they are, but they're not. I'm the only God. And so in those areas of your life, which you know where you put something above God, God wants to say, yes, in a, in a, in a challenging way and in a convicting way, but absolutely in a loving way. Hey, I'm the only God. And I blow all those other gods out the water. You see, our God is majestic. He's the Lord of Lords. He's the King of Kings. He is holy. He is set apart. There's only one Lord. I pray that you know who that Lord is. He is holy. He's set apart. And yet he came down and he died for you. And he rose again. You see... We can think that the gods in our life are important. We can be like the Canaanites and have all these various things which we worship. But hey, our God's God over all of them. Don't we know that in the New Testament where it says that Christ is in all things and he's supreme over everything. That means everything Christ is supreme over. So do you know your God? Because our God is God over all things and he's the only God. That's what he was trying, trying to show to the Canaanite kings who came up against Gibeon. That's what he tries to show to the Israelites through the whole Old Testament. And I believe that's what he's trying to say to us today. Thirdly then, do we know our God? Our God is powerful yet personal. Our God is powerful yet personal. Personal. Let's just dwell on this miracle then, shall we, of the sun? Because I just think it's, I think it's flipping outrageous, isn't it? It's brilliant. Um, what does it say? I'm just going to read it because I think it's brilliant. Verse 12. On the day the Lord gave the Amorites over to Israel, Joshua said to the Lord in the presence of Israel, Sun, stand still over Gibeon, and you moon over the valley of Ijalon. So the sun stood still, and the moon stopped till the nation avenged itself on its enemies, as it is written in the book of Jashar. The sun stopped in the middle of the sky and delayed going down about a full day. There has never been a day like it before or since, a day when the Lord listened to a human being. Surely the Lord was fighting for Israel. Then Joshua returned with all Israel to the camp at Gilgal. You know, our God is a God of miracles. We see it throughout all the New Testament. Healings, demons being cast out, 
When Jesus was crucified, <clears throat> excuse me, on the cross, it was darkness for three hours. Our God is a God of miracles. I genuinely believe that this happened. Absolutely, I believe it happened. You know why? Because I believe Jesus rose from the dead. And that's the greatest miracle of all. Of all. That is the crux of our faith, that Jesus rose from the dead. I believe in the miracles of Jesus. And so it's not too much of a step to, to believe that this happened. In fact, the very definition of a miracle is something which is extraordinary and can't really be explained by natural phenomena. Just a side point on this. You may notice that phrase. What does it say there? As it says in the book of Joshua, it's referenced somewhere else in the Bible in, in 2 Samuel 1.18. And essentially, it's just a, a collection of like poetic accounts or songs of her, heroic deeds which happens for the nation of Israel so that's kind of why it says that it says, hey it's mentioned in the book of Joshua so just if you're wondering that's kind of what that's talking to you see our God's a miracle maker but you know I love verse 14 verse 14 I think is brilliant notice what it says here there has never been a day like it before or since now, you'd expect it to say, there's never been a day like it before or since because flipping heck, the sun stopped for 12 hours. No, that's not what the writer Joshua says. It says, no, there's never been a day like it before or since, a day when the Lord listened to a human being. Friends, our God is personal. We can speak to our God. Our God's not like this abstract, far-off God who we can't have communication with. If you're here today and you've put your trust in Jesus, you have free access to speak to, to the Heavenly Father anytime you want. He knows you deeply. He knitted you together in your mother's womb. He knows you. He's a personal God. You can enter into that eternal conversation with Father, Son and Spirit and speak to him anytime you want. You see, our God is powerful. He can do the miraculous. And maybe you're crying out for that today. Yet at the same time, he's personal. He's not a God who is far off. He is a God who came down to this earth and met with, with people like ourselves, sinners, and offers us hope. And maybe you're sitting there thinking, oh, well, God, does he like, listen to human beings? That's, that's a really interesting phrase. Well, it's been throughout the whole Bible. Abraham, uh, he kind of spoke with God when God was about to destroy Sodom. He said, God, what if there's a few people who, who believe? Would you destroy it then? And God's like, no, I wouldn't destroy it then. And it's this account where he goes through a number of people who could potentially believe in Sodom. And God listens to him and responds to him. King Hezekiah, later in the Bible, he's told that he, he'll pass away shortly. Hezekiah cries out to the Lord and is like, Lord, help me. And God gives him 15 extra years of his life. It's a pattern which continues, as we know, into the New Testament, where the disciples were praying in the upper room for two weeks straight. Peter preached for 10 minutes and 3,000 people were saved. God listens and hears our prayers. And that is exactly why we were created, to be in relationship with the living God and to give him praise. I pray that you would know that today. I pray that that passage highlights it to you today, that wonderful phrase, there's never been a day like it before or since, a day when the Lord listened to a human being. You can know that God today. He is powerful yet personal. So there we go. As we come into land, let's just look back on where we've come.
Do you know your God? Well, our God is faithful to his people. Remember that challenge for us as believers. Will we be like the Israelites and go where people need us? Please think of those people you know who you can help disciple. Our God is faithful to his people. He's faithful to his promises. We may still need to act upon that, though. Our God's God over all things is the only God. He's sovereign, and he is God over all things. And lastly, our God is powerful, yet personal. You see, the answer to that question, do you know your God, there's many characteristics, as I said at the beginning, there's many attributes of God which aren't highlighted in this passage. But I absolutely believe these three things are really clear and I hope are really helpful to all of us here today. Um, As the uh, band um, come back up, I think it's uh, helpful to uh, take some time to reflect on hopefully what the Lord said to you through his words and potentially through what he said through me. Um, So what I think will be helpful is actually for us just to take maybe 30 seconds of silence and just to reflect individually, maybe pray to the Lord, maybe you want to look at the passage again during that time. And my encouragement would be take that time and pray for the Lord to change your heart in whatever area which God's kind of speaking to you on through this passage. So why don't we take 30 seconds, then I will close in prayer and hand over to the Sun Worship team. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for who you are. Thank you, Lord God, that you are God over all things. Thank you, Lord God, that you blow out all those other gods in our lives which we put above you. Thank you, Lord, that you are faithful. Father, I pray for each one of us that we would know that in our hearts, that the promises you declare over us in your word, that you're faithful to complete them. And Lord, I pray for those of us who are in need of your power today in an air of their life, Lord, that you bring power. Uh, thank you, Jesus, that you're personal. You know each one of us. Lord, I pray that you would do a deep work in each of our hearts today, Lord God. And Father, that that work you do today would not be confined to uh, this service time or the rest of Sunday, but actually, Father, your spirit and your word would do such a deep work cemented in our hearts that it lasts beyond this week, beyond this month. And Lord, that you would do deep work which lasts a lifetime, Father. Lord, we pray this all for your glory. All for your glory, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening. Please do come and visit us. Sundays, 10am at the Odeon Cinema in Guildford. We look forward to seeing you.